Welcome to CineLit. Today we are packing our imaginary bags and going on a cinematic holiday abroad. A lot of our listeners will be mourning the lack of sunny climbs, sandy beaches and cheap sangria. But we hope to take everyone on a summer holiday and maybe show you that you're probably better off staying at home. My name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by CineLit's resident expert Daryl Buxton. Hello Daryl. Hello Adam. Hello everyone. And continuing the metaphors, our tour guide for our trips out today is the host of Dabby Quad's Midweek Treats every Wednesday, film lecturer David Lester. Hello, David. Hello, Adam. Pleased to be here. Great stuff. Now, Eagle Ear listeners may remember David from our third ever podcast way back in February 2020, or pre-COVID as we're calling it now, <laughs> when we discussed the streetcar name desire. We've been wanting to get David back on Cineadlet ever since, but as the pandemic intervened, We've only managed to get it now, but here we are, and we are delighted to manage to reconvene. And uh, today's topic is David's um, choice. Summer yeah. holidays, David. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seemed appropriate, uh, as m- many people would not be able to go on holiday, to at least go into a cinema or a pretend cinema and pretend you are on holiday. Yes. And... Um, Interest, not deliberately, but interestingly, the, the films I've chosen have all really been made, uh, they're British films, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, some set in this country, some not. And, uh, well, I'd like, if I can start with uh, my first choice, it's um, a really interesting curio called Holiday Camp. Now, this was the first in a mini-series of films starring the Huggett family. (laughs) Made in 1948, they made three Huggett family films, Here Come the Huggets and The Huggets Abroad. And this was the first one, didn't mention Huggets in the title. It starred a pre-fame Jack Warner, who would go on to become Dixon of Doc Green in the long-running TV series. Not so well-known there, but an established character uh, in in British culture. And also a very young pre-fame Diana Dawes which is of interest. The holiday camp, well, it's all there in the title, really. Um, A family going on holiday alongside other working-class families all getting the same couple of weeks off head for a holiday camp. And what shocked me now, looking at this film from, obviously, the distance of years, is how regimented these holidays were. Um, (laughs) There is not a spare moment, it seems, uh, within the film for people to just relax and do whatever they want. Uh, All the activities are organised for them. So you're getting snake lines of people in their thousands weaving in and out of this this holiday camp, all singing Knees Up Mother Brown or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, I thought it was really interesting seeing them all exercising on the grass there and it's like it's all regimented lined up and just thinking this is 1947 probably eight years earlier that very venue would have been a, a an internment camp for German prisoners of war, and they'd have been doing the very same thing, you know, yeah, yeah. marching them out to give them exercise in between shouting at them, you know. Yeah. There, is, there is an element of the sort of organised fun, and I, th- I think that's very much part of the British psyche, you know. It, it, it translates to things like office work to this day, I think, um, uh, where you know you have your sort of office Christmas party, or you you all go out to celebrate someone's birthday, and you're sort of ordered to do it by your manager, you know. And the holiday camp experience is very much like that, and I think it's very well captured in this film. Um, it's it you know it's uh, um, almost like 1984 at times. You've got because you've actually got disembodied voices making announcements over the camp tannoy over the PA and um, sort of literally barking out orders to to the holiday makers, telling them when they can eat, when they can sleep, when they can go to the the, the camp bar and things like that. And as you say, when they've got to do their exercises and so on. I really uh, thought he was going to say when they can go to the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's almost almost like like that, yeah. you, yeah. you, You wouldn't be surprised if that happened, you know. You could almost show Holiday Camp on a double bill with with a film version of something like 1984 or some sort of dystopian type thing. And it would make it quite an interesting sort of parallel, I think. What one thing this film does very, very well is it really shows the um the, the sort of post-war state of Britain and the post-war state of Britain as it applies to the working family and the working mm. man, the very people who would have been away fighting um in in the early 40s. What happens next? What happens after after the conflict is finished? There is this sort of vague sense of freedom and a yeah. chance of yes. getting away and doing what you like. But then, yeah, that contrasts with this odd sort of regimentation. 
And of course, that would, um, I mean, you're, you're looking forward um, from this film, recognising that in the following decade in the 1950s, places like Butlins were hugely popular. Yes. Pontins, you know, all these real life holiday camps uh, really took over. Um, the idea of foreign travel was, was completely out for most people. Um, and I think this film, and I would argue in many ways that all British films are essentially about class and quite clearly in holiday camp. You're, it, it's working class people that are there. Yeah. You would hardly see a, a, a middle class family or individual there. Um, well, there, uh, it's not kind of a culture to make films about middle classes on holiday, not as a kind of phenomenon, as, as individual dramas, yes, but not as anything that reflected on that class. Mm. Yeah, the extra thing you've got there, which we've already touched on, is the fact that this is a post-war film, and that plays into the... the, the there's, there's like a strata within that class system that, that isn't there at any other time in British history or very few other times in British history where you've, you've got your sort of working middle and upper class but you've also got the sort of returning servicemen mm. as well mm. and they're, they're, they seem to be allocated a certain level of respect and a certain level of treatment yeah. Yeah. by all of the other people in the holiday camp you know and they're, they're sort of allowed to, to sort of talk among themselves about their, their wartime experiences mm. and so on. What's interesting in terms of class is that there's this very, very strange subplot which is beautifully introduced on a newspaper headline and then sort of laced through the second half of the film um, about a serial killer. The mannequin murder. The mannequin murder, right, yes, yeah. yeah. And this is where you, you, you've got your, a, a, a classic situation that often, often occurs in British drama where you've you've got a character who's acting like a sort of upper middle class figure who seems to be better than everyone else and you've got this 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 murder plot going on and it turns out to be the same person you know yeah, that they're yeah. they're sort of not they're they're masquerading they're not quite what they appear yes, to be yes it's you know? it's quite surprising to have that element in what is essentially a fun film yes i mean you know you're immediately thinking of something like brighton rock there Indeed, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, a seaside setting. Yeah, it's uh, also got the other subplot. Isn't entirely played for laps and could be. It's the gambling scam that mm, goes on yes, involving yes. the Huggett's son. And yeah. Jack Warner comes in, pre-Sergeant pre Bilko, sort of comes in and does a sort of Phil Silvers on, on, yeah, the, uh, on yeah. the shady gangsters and yeah. ripping everybody off of their holiday money. Yeah, that's a nice touch, that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that that isn't, necessarily played for laughs it's played in a, again in a very gritty yes. sort of bright and rock yeah you're of set up for yeah, Jack yeah. Warner's character to be scammed as well yes and of yeah. course he turns the tables completely yeah and and I think the fact that Warner would be known to the audience at that time as as a sort of comic figure unlike what he sort of became mm. later through through Dixon at this time he, he was um sort of known as as, as a comic player but um this allows him to sort of spread his wings a little bit and do do he's he's got he's got the comedy scenes and the one liners and the stuff where he's sort of ordering the family about and so on. Mm. But suddenly here's a scene where he can get tough and he can put one over on the bad guys and um and he can then sort of deliver morals to his his family as well and mm. uh, um yeah it's interesting it could have gone down that sergeant bilko type route of playing it all a bit more for laughs but uh, but yeah it's it, it, again it's a subplot that's quite hard hitting in the middle yes of yeah what, there, there's, otherwise there's, there's a lot of ingredients there comedy. aren't there and it's looking, of course, against uh, across the age groups as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, the... it's got a weird sort of like. I mean, it's got a documentary feel to it in some ways. Like, yeah. in a sort of like, this is what the working classes do when they go on holiday, <laughs> yeah. and they and you follow like quite a lot of like individual characters. It's not like it's not about the Huggets essentially. It's, mm. it's, it's it's a cross section of a It's it's an ensemble movie in mm. many ways. And uh, as I was just thinking, as I was thinking that, I realized the director had done documentaries prior, and obviously bring that to, to to the experience here and I'm assuming that I mean I haven't seen the other Huggett movies but I'm assuming that that kind of style went out of the window and it became much more of like let's see the Huggets somewhere else let's see the Huggets go abroad Huggets go to prison or whatever and it's much more uh, uh, family focused oh, it's, comedy yes yeah. that's right but yes yeah. Yeah. There, there were other other families in British entertainment as well from radio and early TV like the, the Lions being a mm. famous one mm. who who um, uh, 
this became a, a, a sort of um, regular thing in British cinema of the late 40s, early 50s, yeah. was that you'd have films about these family groups. But yeah, the, the first one, as you say, Adam, does um, it sort of uses them as a, as a fulcrum, as a sort of focus, and then has the characters from the family sort of going off and meeting other people. And so we get, we get this uh, sort of tapestry of stories, and it's... Uh, it's quite an interesting way to sort of tell that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was obviously popular as well. Obviously, otherwise, they wouldn't have made the subsequent two films. Yeah, no, hugely popular, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, it's if we look at, uh, in a historical setting, uh, this was an uncomfortable time for the country. You know, the, the, it, we were bankrupted by the war. Uh, you had the, um, the, 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 this cold spell. You had, well, the, big, the all right, beginning of the welfare state, which is wonderful, but how that survived against the economic backdrop at the time. But there's no hint at the moment of dissatisfaction amongst the, the population no. with what they're having to endure. Well, certainly I mean, in this film there's not. No, and also, I mean, you can understand how what, what a pleasure it would have been to um, take a rest from the economic troubles you might have had and all pack away on holiday. You can't help but be be happy because everyone around you is happy. Yeah, yeah, and it's not like, I me. Mean, I don't, I don't really know much, but I'm assuming during the war people weren't going on holiday <laughs> you know what I mean so that, no. yeah, some of them wouldn't have had holidays well, they wouldn't have had a years. holiday in France or <laughs> yeah, no, no. Italy <laughs> exactly yeah well, I just got a quick trip to Germany be nice. yes um, that's right yes yeah <laughs> I think the film's got a legacy as well within British cinema if you look at what's happened in, in British movies since um, uh, it's I mean this is a film directed by Ken Anakin it's produced by uh, Sydney and Muriel Box it's written by Peter Rogers who went on to produce the Carry On films right. and in it's you know at heart it's it's a lowbrow working class British comedy and that's been a staple of British cinema ever since and Peter Rogers right at the heart of that I guess with the carry-ons mm. of which there were at least three carry-on films out of their 30 or so that you could call holiday movies mm. carry-on cruising carry-on abroad carry-on camping, camping I guess yeah. maybe one or two of the others fit fit the mm. bill as yeah. well um but um and you, you you've then got uh, films um Beyond that, like um, Confessions from a Holiday Camp, for instance, with uh, Robin Asquith and the team, mm. um, uh, TV sitcoms became notorious for, <laughs> oh, how, how do we expand the TV sitcom onto the big screen? What you do is you take your characters on holiday, and that happened in Holiday on the Buses. Yeah. It happened in The Likely Lads, where they go on sort of camping and caravanning holiday. Um it happened in Are You Being Served, where they all went, the, all of the ho the um, department store staff went to a, a Spanish hotel. And um, that continued into the 21st century, unbelievably. You know, it's, it's, it's not an old-fashioned, outdated 70s thing, because since then we've had the, the Harry Enfield sketch yeah. show turning into the movie uh, Kevin and Perry Go Large, which is set on Ibiza. And the first in between us movie, which mm. was uh, set on a on a Greek island. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, there's still that that sort of trope of British sitcoms taking their characters away on holiday, and it often happens in in sort of special sort of Christmas editions. Yeah, so about to yeah. say that feature length yeah. editions on TV yeah. as well. I mean, that, that's we... the gap between those ones. Like since eighties and nineties, those Christmas specials, those Miami Twice and yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Hyacinth Bouquet going on the, on the boats on the on the, on the Queen Mary. Uh, and, and and in the Huggets film, you can see the roots of all this. You know, yeah. it's a it's a fascinating film, I think, for British film historians because uh, you you can see how, in fact, directly through Peter Rogers, you can see how the Carry On films sort of span off from from movies like this. And and Rogers is in there; he's scripting this. And there is there are sort of almost proto carry on type gags mm. in there at times. Yeah. You know, and, and and the way the characters sort of respond to each other. And the way Jack Warner's almost like the Sid James of this movie, um, and you, you can you can see those character types evolving. Yeah, I mean, do we see a, a similar trend in in films in other countries? Do you think? I, I think in Italy, the sort of like comedies of, of yeah. going on abroad, the, the, yeah, the, the, Italy, the Italian comedies, very, very much, much so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. comedy all the, 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 the thing, the thing is. And I think this applies to British films as well. This type of humour doesn't travel. It's mm. it's very parochial. It's very sort of insular. Mm. And this is why it ha we know it. We know there are films like this in Italy, but who's who's seen them mm. outside outside mm. of 
they don't even appeal to everyone in their home country. You know, they tend to appeal to lowbrow audiences. So even if you went to Italy and started talking to, to friends over there or people involved in film over there about the, this level of Italian comedy, they probably just sniff and, and say, oh, no, we don't like those. Yeah. In the way that you might get British critics and British film people saying that about Carry On Abroad or about Confessions from the mm. Holiday Camp. Yeah. Moving on to the to, to David's next choice, um, there's something a bit more about this one. Um, it's obviously directed by a very small-time director who <laughs> no one's ever heard of, David Lean, you know. So we're looking hey, at David Summertime. Who? Yeah, yeah yes. David who? Yeah. Uh, summertime, 1955. Yeah, the, uh, thinking about David Lean and his films, you could argue that uh, practically all his films are about escape. Um, and this is uh, a case in point, Summertime. Um, we can, if we, having seen this film about... Uh, a, um, a, a middle-aged single woman going on holiday in Venice and getting embroiled in a romance. Obviously, you're thinking ahead to things like Shirley Valentine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, this the, 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 the woman you've mentioned there, David, played played by a, a, another little-known, um, yes. you know, <laughs> uh, sort of undiscovered talent, a, a, a lady called Catherine Hepburn. Yes, well, so, I wonder what ever yeah. happened to her career after Yeah, she this. only had 12 Oscar nominations for Best Actress, <laughs> yeah. including yeah. this film. So, you know, she was uh, immensely talented. When we talked about Kathleen, uh, Catherine Hepburn on the uh, podcast we did earlier on the year when we talked about RKO, and but mainly about her early years when we were talking bringing up baby mm. and things like that. Mm. At this point in her career, she has got this character down pat. The sort of like a middle aged, um, still has life in her, but you know she's either a widower or yeah. she's a spinster. Yeah. Or... She, she's playing Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, yes, point. she's, she's playing a middle aged Catherine. Gloriously Hepburn. so, I think yeah. as well. She pulls yes. out all the usual stops. She just does everything that you want from her, but. That's what audience would have, audiences would have expected that at the time. If you're putting your ticket money down to see a Catherine Hepburn mm. movie, if you pay to see a Fred Astaire movie, you want Fred to dance. You know, mm. yes. If you go and see a Catherine Hepburn movie, you want this sort of elegant, sophisticated, waspish, biting, cutting sort of character um, who's got a sense of style, very much her own woman, and able to sort of hold her own in in an argument or a debate or a conflict and to do so in a sort of humorous and cutting way and and we we get that in spades here i think yeah i mean it's interesting to to compare her and uh, her career at this stage with someone of a similar age ingrid bergman mm. who cut her ties with hollywood famously and went off to with rossellini to make these films like stromboli and journey to italy uh, which again are set in well kind of exotic places yeah. But they, you wouldn't call them necessarily holiday films. I think they're not very happy. <laughs> no, mean, they're certainly not. Italy, I mean, Journey, yeah. yes, you're, you're looking at a divorce there. <laughs> exactly. With Stromboli, yeah. you're looking at this young woman uh, who's taken into, well, the island of Stromboli and realises it's a prison sentence yeah, yeah. on this black volcanic island from which there is no escape. Mm. In, well, in well, saying that, though, he's saying that, though, Journey to Italy, about a holiday that almost revol- uh, it results in divorce, is probably very familiar to many married couples out there. <laughs> well, yes, yes. And uh, the highlight is going to Pompeii and seeing loads <laughs> yeah. of dead bodies yeah. which are obviously yeah. the victims of, uh, of, of volcan- the mm. volcanic eruption. We're, we're talking as though summertime is a barrel of laughs and, and uh, it, no, it, it's it, in its own There are way, moments of humour. Um, yes, I mean you know, there's, she, inevitably someone's going to fall in the canal and it happens to be Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> which apparently she uh, she did her own stunt on that Yeah, and was like very, very happy to do her own stunts and she's like, yes, fantastic. She did it and then like got a massively bad infection in her eye and it affected her for the rest of her life. So it's like, maybe you should have done your own stunts at that point, yeah. Yeah. How, how much of this film do you think is David Lean attempting to recapture the, the glories of A Brief Encounter? Because it's got that yes, element. Yes, it certainly is. I was, I was aware of that. He made a kind of interesting film which kind of goes under the radar a bit, sort of in, in between those. And that's the passionate friends, um, which starts off in Switzerland, where this this central character goes on holiday, and she's reminded of a romance that she had some ten years before. She's married now, but uh, her flame turns up there, and of course reignites this this affair. So um, it's, not, it's an idea that sort of percolates through. It's it's in the lean filing cabinet. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, brief encounter to some extent, obviously is. 
it still has the idea of escape, escape from routine in this case, not necessarily escape from a place. Um, um, I mean, a brief encounter like like um, the passionate friends and like this to a large extent as well is the embodiment of uh, the well. You're looking at the middle classes here very definitely, and in each of these cases, you're you're having middle class characters making individual decisions. Yeah. or making individual journeys, not part of a collective, as would have happened in Holiday Camp. Yeah. To pick up on that, David, how, how symbolic do you think Venice is in, in this movie? Because Venice is a place that's often used in movies, yeah. and more often than not, it is used as a symbol rather than... Yeah. You, you, it's rare that you get a film that sort of focuses on Venice for its own attributes. It's often used yes. as, as a sort of... Um, a, a, a means of depicting the, the the inner turmoil of the character or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, obviously Venice has a long history and I think what you would associate it with now is culture. It's not an obvious place that you would choose to go on holiday if you want, um, you know, sun, sand and sea. Um, you, you only go to, to Venice really in order to look at the history of the place and to look at the, the, the Renaissance um, and your place in it. Um, uh, which I think is quite interesting. So that you're you're aligning yourself with a culture and making a statement in that way. And that is more important than the idea of escape or relaxation. We don't really see much of Catherine Hepburn doing the culture, but she is seen in exotic places. Yes. What's interesting when you do see her doing that is she's, she's, she carries a bolex around all the way through yeah. the movie. Ra- rather than, you'd expect a character like that, and there are other characters in the film who, you know, you'd, you'd expect tourists to be carrying around a, a, a box brownie, you know, a little camera or something. But to, here she is with, with a, a, a movie camera, which is interesting. <laughs> and, of course, what we, what we get, we occasionally sort of see through the lens of what, what she's filming. And um, what we get is beautifully composed David Lean shots, you know, <laughs> as, as though, as though this, this uh, again, sort of upper-middle-class tourist is David Lean, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it, it's weird, but it works for the film, I think. Is it, is it, it more of a... It works st- that we get these great views of Venice through her eyes and through that camera lens. Mm. Is that not just a more of a statement of sort of like, you can't shoot a bad shot of Venice? You know, this is a beautiful place. Literally, you could be the worst photographer in the world and every photo you take is a masterpiece. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the film. Um, I, it wasn't typically the type of film I, I usually enjoy. Um, but I found it quite interesting in the in the terms of of, of Lean's career. Yes. I mean, with regards to Catherine Hepburn, she'd been playing this kind of character, I guess, from like African Queen, and you know, she she'd already developed that. People like Daryl said, people knew what they were expecting from mm-hmm. her movie. But for David Lean, I think he'd done he'd done the Dickens stuff. He'd yeah. done like Blythe Spirit, Brief Encounter, all that kind of stuff. But it was pre a David Lean picture kind oh, of thing yeah, where it was like sweeping vistas yet. and I, things I, like I that. I think his, yeah. his, his 50s have, have got some interesting little nuggets like this in them yeah. and like the film yeah. that David mentioned because uh, I, I think people know him for his big Dickens uh, stuff in the 40s and of course we know him for, for the epics that he did later on sort of post Lawrence of Arabia but um, the 50s Lean is an area that I think might probably needs a, a, a little more sort of research and a little more digging into because mm. yeah that's uh, right yeah. It, it, this period of his career is often neglected I think yeah cool okay so let's move let's move on to we jump a few years now for your next choice mm. we jump from 1955 to 1989 so uh there's just nothing in between those in between those years <laughs> worth mentioning until so well, eighty nine. Uh, yeah, as I say, it was carry on abroad <laughs> and confessions from a holiday camp. There you so. go. So we, we move to nineteen ninety three. So not nineteen eighty nine, even even longer. Uh, Bargy on the beach by Gurinder Chadra, scripted by Mira Soel. Yes, I mean I think this is largely interesting for a mainstream audience in that it includes uh, characters from a different culture mm-hmm. and put them in a British set setting. Yeah, was that was that unusual? Because I, I from, from a, I watched this again this week and from a modern audience is it felt like that's that's what you do that's a paint by numbers thing you take the the fish out of that water and put them in a new situation you know and it felt like that's what you do had this kind of thing been done is there is there uh, films that precede this that that set that uh, i'm 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 trying to think i I can't i not from inside the culture you know, I, I recall this film coming out and um, it was sort of sold and did seem like a, a, a shift. You know, it, it was like, 
oh, this this is new. This is you know have, having having these Indian characters involved in in what otherwise is a conventional setup that we've seen in sitcoms and and comedy dramas and things before. Yeah, I I, I think. Um, you know, it was a bit of a cultural shift. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're looking as well. The viewpoint is from inside their culture. Yeah, not yeah, we're not yeah. looking as a white English person at a culture that we don't quite understand, but we're intrigued by. Yeah, with with a, 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 a cast and indeed a, a, a crew. You know, we've got director and writer who who are, are from that same background. Yeah, and these are people that might not have had chances in the British film industry mm. even five or ten years earlier. Yeah, but you do have individual stories there. Yeah, and yeah. the way that they play out while they're all on the beach is interesting. And, of course, you've got the cross-generational conflicts as well. Um, you know, the emerging young people who are keen to have their own individual life, uh, divorced, really, from the culture that they come from. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me about that, I'm, I'm not a fan of the film, and I don't I don't really like Kurgan the Charder's sort of mm. approach to, to cinema. I find it... It's it's more it's more sort of lowbrow than I think she thinks it is, and uh, I, it, it, I kind it, of agree. It, it's a bit sort of on the nose for me as well. Um, what's interesting about what you're saying there, David, is that uh, those sort of ideas about family conflict and so on, and and the, the sort of hierarchy within the sort of Indian family system. Um, there's lots of talk about the aunties, for instance, all yeah. the way through the film. I, I, I think that's that's new to cinema, but I don't think it was necessarily new to to the the, the, the viewers. I think people would would be aware of that type of thing simply from sort of talking to your next door neighbours or or talking to members of the Indian community, um, you know, within within your town or city. Um, and I, I always get the sense with Gurinder Chada that she thinks she's she's bringing something new that we we don't know, and it's almost like she's trying to sort of sell it to a white audience and and to say, look, you know, you you people don't understand this. This is this is what my culture's like, and and I often sort of shrug and go, well, I do understand it. You know, yeah. you, you're not really uh, yeah. telling me anything it's, that I don't know. It's a populist film, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It, it wouldn't is. have been difficult for any white person to to watch that film no, and no. not recognise tropes that it'd seen yeah. before. I, I felt it was it, for me. I mean, I I wasn't overly fond of it, and I am I'm, I'm a big 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 fan of a good pun. Um, Barge on the beach, just this the title it made in heaven for me. But yeah, I wasn't fond of the movie, and I felt it felt for me it felt like it's described as a comedy drama, and I felt like it fell in between the two. It yeah. wasn't funny enough to be a comedy. It wasn't dramatic enough to be a drama. And it kind of like I don't really know whether I cared that much. Yeah, I mean, yes, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the film, I have to say. But I think it's quite interesting. You could argue that it's 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 capturing the director between two worlds. Mm obviously coming from the culture and trying to engage with the, with the mainstream culture in the country. Yeah. And right. to a large extent, I guess it, I guess it works. Yeah. I mean, Bend It Like Beckham as well works because, well, you're taking on you know, the national sport. You're going to engage with, with millions of people who like football. Mm. Yeah. And the two films we've mentioned already needed to be holiday movies. This, this, one, this one sort of has the holiday a little bit tacked on. Does yeah. it need to be set in Blackpool? Do we need the coach? No. Well, I think Couldn't I think, you tell this story in in their hometown? I, I think you probably could, but I think the, the the comfort of being in their hometown is taking the characters into a relatively unfamiliar situation. It's not that unfamiliar, but they are out of their town. They are meeting people that they don't know in there. I think that just the symbolism of that, and I think the symbolism of Blackpool as a holiday destination mm. and... I don't think much has changed in the last uh, 30 years <laughs> well, of it being a white uh, holiday destination, ultimately, where people go on their holidays. Do you know the film Hindle Wakes? Yeah. From 19... Mm -hmm. Well, I think there was a silent version, but I've yeah. seen the 1931 yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big, big Manchester film. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you've got a similar... I mean, that goes... To, that's uh, set in Blackpool. It starts in Blackpool, yeah. is it not? Uh, with an industrial holiday mm -hmm. uh, where... Um, a young mill worker, this young uh, mill working woman, uh, has a, a weekend fling with the son of the mill owner, and the scandal that it, that ensues from that. 
um, whereby the the young couple are obliged to marry. Um, but what a strong final statement from the young woman, the mill worker, who says, "I don't want this. Mm-hmm. I want my own individual life, and I want the power over my own life." And well, I mean, I was going to include Hindle Wakes as one of the films because well, it's not necessarily a holiday film, but the holiday kickstarts it. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how, well, in many ways, Hindle Wakes is is a challenging film. It's challenging people's preconceptions about um, uh, about how society works across the across the classes. Um, but it's also a strong feminist statement mm-hmm. and an unexpected one. Yeah. That was 1952, and you're getting similar themes and tones in Baji on the Beach in 1993. Mm. That's a good... You know, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Hindle Wakes can, can be remade, and it's, it could still be made to, to look like a challenge. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing really challenging about Baji on the Beach. No, no. It, it's got a very odd sort of subplot, uh, Baji on the Beach, involving the uh, character played by Peter Sellier, Ambrose Waddington, who's this, this sort of grand old um, sort of man of the stage and man of the theatre. Mm, well, the name's um, it. He hooks up with the... Um, the character Asher, played by uh, Lalita Ahmed, who is one of the one of the fabled aunties in the film, who whose word is law, sort of thing, and um, uh, and it's it's revealed that he has actually got a connection. His character has actually got a connection with Bollywood through a previous relationship, and right. uh, that he's appeared in Bollywood movies. And there's almost this sort of love story or, or semi-holiday romance thing, um, almost a sort of condensed version of that because the ladies are only there for, for the day sort of thing, aren't they? And there's this very odd fantasy sequence where um, Asher imagines Ambrose as a, a Bollywood movie star who, who rather unfortunately is uh, is caked in brown face makeup. Um, seems a, 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 looking at it from from our perspective in in twenty twenty one, it, it it seems a, a, a bizarre scene, especially as it comes from from um, Indian filmmakers, rather you know Indian British mm. filmmakers, rather than a, a white filmmaker. Um, I, I found a quote from a book called uh, Bollywood Sociology Goes to the Movies by Rajinder Kumar Dudra, um, which took a, 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 a slightly different view to the way I'm looking at it. Um, uh, saying that uh, Asher is woken abruptly to the realisation that Ambrose is a white man with an orient- orientalist sexual fantasy to rescue Asian women who he considers to be oppressed by their own cultures and that the insertion of Bollywood aesthetics in this segment draw us into the imagination of Asher to enter her dream world where she is able to fantasise another possibility but this possibility is placed within a context of social racial and sexual power that suggests that neither asher or ambrose are suited for each other so um uh Dudra in in that sense seems to sort of take very much take asher's side in in this fantasy and and project onto this the idea that it's almost like this white male oppressor who's 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 sort of coming on to her in this sort of afternoon in Blackpool, and that she manages to sort of fend him off. But the the, the way that's depicted in the fantasy is is pretty outrageous to, to sort of modernise and may well have been to audiences in 1993, I guess. You know, this is a this is a film which is more interesting to talk about than to see, isn't it? <laughs> Thing. I mean, it, it has it dated? Would you would you think now? I, 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 well, it, I, as it, I've just suggested, I think it may have been dated on the day it came yes, out. Yes, yes. I mean, maybe more dated than Holiday Camp, even. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean it, it, yes, it is. But I think we, I think British TV and British films still play strongly on those Indian stereotypes and those Indian cultural um, uniqueness in things like. Um, uh, Citizen Khan. It's like goodness gracious me and so yeah. on. In sort of trying to invert and parody the, 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 the British TV sitcom characters go on holiday sort of idea, you end up making a movie in which sitcom type characters go on holiday. I mean, this. And it doesn't really step much beyond that. I mean, this is still, this is the same period, isn't it, more or less, as you've got things like um, Buddha of Suburbia? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, which is. Uh, uh, 
well, you, it's it's coming from inside the Indian culture, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's um, it's it's taking on something quite different. Yeah, yeah. And has as as, as did a few years before that, uh, my beautiful laundress. I was just thinking did, of that. Yeah, it's very much the yeah. same. So we've already yeah. had these. And maybe it's something that works much much better in in a serious drama than it does in. in a they are more kind of niche pieces, aren't they? I yeah. suppose Buddha yeah. Suburbia and my beautiful laundress. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're aimed at at a demographic that knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's the left-leaning uh, youth culture. Certainly think something like My Beautiful Laundrette was, you know, immediately adopted by um, that kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of broad demographic. Yes. And also, at the time, it was a challenge to Thatcherism. Yes. I mean, that raises the question as to whether she thought that she had a specific audience when she was making this. And was it uh, uh, an Indian audience, primarily? Or... I, I assume she had a wider ambition than I that. think it was the exact opposite. I mm. think she was I think with this film it was much more about like, well, let's try and pack in those middle class white audiences that are attending art house cinemas yeah, up and down the I country agree. and and give them something like this. They'll sit and watch a French film, uh, no problem, and showing their different culture. Why not? Do the same thing with yeah. with an Indian culture. I, I as I say, mm, that I, seems I, to be her. Uh, I goal. think she thinks she's sort of educating a white audience in the ways, the, the mysterious ways of, of the Indian family, and yeah. I, I think the, the, a, a lot of audiences of any culture will will sort of go along to a film like Barger on the Beach and just shrug and say, "Well, you're, you're telling me nothing I don't already know." Maybe mm. not so much as those middle class white audiences that attended to White House cinemas <laughs> in the early nineties, though. I think they probably were experienced Indian characters for the first time through movies. Maybe, like maybe this. there's an element of the audience that were. I I, I don't I don't know that it was a, a dominant percentage. Mm. Um, I think I think one of the other things that stood out for me is there's quite a lot of plot lines in this movie in a similar way to Holiday Camp, mm. um, and it has that sort of like you juggling multiple storylines and, and which feels better if it was a novel. And I don't think they quite managed to get the balance right in the storylines and certainly not in the acting. I think there's some really bad performances in this movie. There's some really dodgy performances and then there's some really good performances. Yeah, well, um, it's, it's got my, my favourite bad actor on British TV, Jimmy Harkishin, who's, who's in Coronation Street at the moment. I absolutely love him. He's, he's almost like the, the Indian Frankie Howard, you know, and he, he plays the villain in, in Barger on the Beach. I, I, I love him, but he's, he's not the world's best actor by any means. <laughs> And and he has to sort of handle dramatic stuff here, and he in 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 the film's big climax, and he doesn't quite cut it. I don't think. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our next ones, where it's these next two films are much more about holiday destinations as catalysts for change, mm. I guess, rather than a holiday and a break and a relaxing. These characters are not doing that much relaxing on these holidays. So first up, we've got Marvin Keller from 2000. Yes, that's right. So Lynn Ramsey's second film, based on a novel where um, a young woman in the film played by Samantha Morton, her boyfriend, who uh, has written this best-selling book, has died. Um, she has this money bequeathed to her, and she decides to up sticks from Scotland and uh, holiday in Ibiza. Mm. On a, I guess on a quest, it sounds corny, to find herself. And obviously she's at the age where she fits into the culture that, uh, that we normally associate with Ibiza. But the depictions of that culture are kind of are quite objective. Lynn Ramsey herself has a kind of semi-immersive interest in, in this destination, but also, also she stands back. And it becomes rather embarrassing mm. that you have one scene, for instance, set at night where Samantha Morton is sat out on the balcony and all round of this is mayhem going on where every household is throwing toilet rolls and bottles or whatever and shouting at the top of their voice. Um, and then another time there is this bit like holiday camp where you have this engineered activity which is by no means as innocent as the activities in holiday camp where um, a a young man and a young woman are immersed in a pool and they essentially strip each other and at the end um, uh, they they emerge uh, with this mini audience around them and the whole scene is 
incredibly embarrassing. And even the onlookers themselves look and feel embarrassed at this. It's not something that they're celebrating. It's not a, a kind of uh, a climax in any way. It's an embarrassment. Mm. And the film increasingly has that kind of detached attitude towards uh, this holiday centre and, and also the culture it represents. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's one of those. I think the interesting thing is not just that her her uh, recently deceased boyfriend um, dies and she gets his money; she steals his novel. Yeah, yeah, he's, that's he's, right. That's, I think that's a really key part. He, yes. he writes this book and she writes her name on it. Yes. He, say, he says, "I've I've written, I've left this book for you, for Marvin Keller." So she takes that as meaning. Yeah. Well, I can just delete your name off it and put my name on it, and she publishes yeah. it. And, it's and of course, there is, it kind of backfires, doesn't it? Because she's expected to write a follow up, yeah. and she's interviewed, and it's clearly it's clear uh, that she, she had no involvement in no. this yeah. book whatsoever. But it's also it's also it's also like she's looking to find who she is. Yeah, yeah. And she starts off by stealing her boyfriend's yeah. book and. They're making her yeah. as if she's somebody, and the different. film ends really with her still looking. Yeah, still looking, but yeah. but looking and more individually, I think, mm-hmm. away from the the crutches of the culture that she yeah. came from or the culture that she thinks she belongs to. Well, yeah, she knows that's not her, and then yeah. by the end of the movie, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have either of you guys read the uh, read the source novel? Yeah. I, yes, I, I did. Yeah. And the sequel. Yeah. How close is the is the movie to the to the book? I'm not sure, actually. I, I feel like spiritually they're aligned. Right. I'm, I'm asking because I, I don't particularly like the movie. I'm, I'm not a Lynn Ramsey fan, although I'm in a situation where I sort of see her films and I recognise that there's talent there and I recognise that there's a vision there and I've seen all of her movies, but um, I've, I've got a complete blind spot with her. I, I just don't take to her sort of style at all. And I, I, I find this film... A little deficient in 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 that respect. It's 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 me rather than the film, I think. But uh, um, any, I, I just wonder if any deficiencies that I find do they arise from the source material or do they? Come I think from both the film they 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 are an enigma, deliberately an enigma. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which is. You know, something maybe in I, different ways. Something that I can take to with certain filmmakers, and I, I maybe I just don't get it with Lynn. Um, I, I just don't sort of pick up on on on. The, the clues that she's dropping in that sense, David. Yeah, the, the scenes you mentioned there about you, we've, we've got the lads sort of goofing around and throwing water and throwing things at each other across the balconies mm. and, and then the, the, the stripping scene in the pool. This, this, I think, shows the difference between my reaction to the film and yours because you've obviously found some meaning in that and some sense of a sort of level where Lynn is, is trying to sort of make a point with those scenes. And I, I just watched those and thought, these scenes would have been rejected from Carry On Abroad. Okay. You know, See, and, but, and I think that's that's the sort of diff, that's the different approach that we're coming at here. But the whole movie is about her trying to find who she is in a weird sense. Yeah, she's trying to find herself. Mm. But she literally is in this movie. And I think seeing these people who are behaving how they are supposed to behave or as the Daily Mail would have you believe these characters behave. And I think the sense of awkwardness and the sense of embarrassment and the sense of of feeling disconnected from what's going on is part of that. Yeah. It's part of plus, being that plus, age. Plus, I guess, the fact that she's there's, there's this sort of... Um, there's this thing she's trying to hide as well. The fact that she she sort of purloined this this novel yeah. and taken ownership of it. Yeah, she's um, a fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which it again to me says she, if she's trying to find herself, that there, there there isn't all that much to find really. <laughs> Or is that the point? Well, I don't think. I mean, she has no embarrassment about the fact that she's hiding this, uh, um, you know, this lie. Um, there's no kind of game plan, is there? there she's not, a- not to be. Yeah, I mean, she's going. She's going away from somewhere rather than going to somewhere. Well, yeah, I don't. I, mean, I don't think she feels like she's stolen the novel. No, no, no. I think do she I. thinks he says it's I think for it's me. An, it's an so opportunity, I, yeah. and she exploits it. Well, not even, not even, not, not, and, not, and not in a cynical way. Yeah, not. In, she, I don't think it was an exploitation. It's like he's like, well, he left it me that, but he left me mm. that book. 
And he said it was for me. So as, though, my, as though it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, so I put my... She, well, not even that. She, she, she's, she's ententitled. Yeah, she's her. entitled to that yeah, because yeah. It, was, mm. it was given to her. It wasn't like it was he published it, made loads of money and then gave her the money. It was like the book is yours to do with whatever you want. Having said that, Adam, what do you then make of the scenes where the, the, the publishers actually telephone her and then actually even come out to the mm. holiday destination to uh, to interview her? Um well, that for me is more about exploitation, isn't it? It's like they think they've got the next Irving Welsh or yeah. whatever, the, the next exciting young talent, and, and they haven't. Are these no. supposed to be almost, or not comedic scenes, but are we supposed to be sort of laughing at them and at their mistake that, that while, while being on the side of the... Well, I felt like a, 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 a similar kind of embarrassment. She's she's not essentially she's not covering up anything either. Mm. She's just expressing her feelings at that moment, and they're completely shallow. Yeah, and obviously they're not what uh, the, the, the these would be publishers are after whatsoever. Yeah, there's a character a character we've not mentioned so far is the um, she she's got a friend yeah, who, who that's travels right. with her, yeah. a Scottish sidekick. Yeah. yeah. Um, what 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 do we make of her? Is is she is she real? Is she a, another sort of aspect? Is she there to sort of represent another aspect? Of Samantha Morton's character, or or what? What's what's the point of uh, her? To some extent, I feel that she is the other side of what Samantha Morton's character might have found on right. holiday. I mean, we recognise that there was a friendship because they worked together. You know, they're close friends. It would be it would be obviously entirely logical for uh, Samantha Morton for Morton Caller to take her, um, the, uh, her friend away on holiday, and her friend is completely at at ease really in this setting. It's what she expects and what she wants. She's not there for any surprises. She's there for, well, a bit of hedonism, really. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, Samantha, but Morvan Keller um, is unable or unwilling or uninterested in being part of this culture, so that which still leaves her as a kind of blank slate. Where does she go from here? That needs to be there as a contrast then, as, well, as, as, I, a, I, me- yeah. as a means of saying... Yes, but it's not an artificial one because there's, an, there's, a, there's a relationship already established there. Of course, there. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm conflicted on whether I think Samantha Morton's good in this movie or not. I think she's she's specific and unique in this yeah. movie. Whether I like the performance or not is another matter. That's, yeah, that's, Samantha that's has this probably, trick of not seeming to act. Yeah, yeah that's probably and she does in this. I would say. I, yeah, I think no, you, I agree. You, may like, be, you may be supposed to come away from the film feeling like that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Spo- I think he's definitely right. supposed to have a frustration with her. Yeah, and the mm. character definitely, mm. you know, you, and that and and that that stems from the fact that she isn't necessarily frustrated with herself, or certainly on the level that she's mm. she's stolen the novel. Yeah, we're we're sort of screaming at the fact that she's she's there under false pretences, and she she doesn't seem to give a damn. So, uh, no. which is uh, you know interesting within that character, I can see. Yes, I mean, as a central character, we're not seeing the action through her eyes. We always have an objective view of her because she's someone consistently unknowable. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. I think it's one of those Mm. ones where, where as as we see, you either connect with or you don't connect with. Mm. Um, I, I have a, a nice personal connection with a, with a, with a film in that my very one of my very early short films that was funded was played before this film oh, right. in in the cinema. So. I have like I have a connection to that and a nice warm fuzzy feeling whenever I, I see the name Marvin Keller. But yeah, let's move let's move on to your, your final one. So we've had we've had a Scottish working class eighteen to to thirty five holidays um, hedonism sex. We we don't get as much of that in this next one. We get the sex, but we don't get much of the other stuff in Unrelated by Joanna Hogg. Yes, yes. I mean, this is this is a film I remember and I, I with Sally. We both watched a, a pre-screening of this mm-hmm. in this very cinema, or in in cinema in the RDS uh, as it is now. So um, I have specific memories of seeing mm. this early in the morning, one Friday morning. Um, jo- Joanna Hogg's first film. She'd she'd worked um, as a director on uh, EastEnders for a number of years, mm-hmm. um, and I, um, she uh, but she she'd worked with Derek Jarman as well, which seems. Uh, odd that she should then sidetrack into EastEnders. But she said about her first film that um, she deliberately um, went against all the advice that she'd been given uh, as a director of, of um, EastEnders. And, and clearly, you wouldn't associate Unrelated in any way, I think, with, uh, with anything from EastEnders. It's, um, it stars a middle-aged woman 
again, like Catherine Hepburn, I guess, who um, has a, a long-term relationship with a, with a man, uh, which she's, in, she's dissatisfied with. It's not giving her the fulfillment she wants. And she is intending to break up this relationship. Uh, she is invited on holiday with an old school friend to spend some time in Umbria, um, close to the, the town of Siena. In fact, the town of Siena does uh, feature at certain points in this film. Um, and um, obviously she comes into this scenario as something of an outsider. Her, her school friend has uh, a family. She has um, teenage children. Um, and what's interesting about the film is that, um, uh, well, on one, in one level, um, the central character uh, is able to in, uh, evaluate her, her relationship from a distance. And I think holiday films are quite interesting in this respect, that you can get a different perspective on things that might be troubling you at home. And you don't have a kind of distance while you're in the situation, but you can have an objective view when you're outside it. So to a large extent, she is in, she's in a position where she can evaluate objectively the worth of her relationship and whether it's worth going on. But she is sidetracked because she gets more and more involved in the culture of the, of the, of the teenage children. Um, and this sets up inevitably conflicts but within that culture, but also between her and her friend. So you have this, you have several layers there of conflict. And I found that, well, unexpected in a film that is, a, is a, essentially about holiday. You do, get, you do get some, well, I guess you could call them exotic shots of Umbria, the countryside, and the town of Siena, which had, there's some nice, nice sequence there. Um, but the themes are quite unexpected. And, um, uh, and uh, I think the film lets itself down at the end because I think it resolves itself in rather too neatly. Uh, but for the, for the majority of the film, when I first saw it, I was unaware of where the film was going to go. Yeah, one, one of the core things about the film is, is um, as you say, David, she involves herself in the lives and, and likes of the, of the younger characters and sort of associates with them as a group. There's then this element where she, she begins to sort of fantasise or develop this idea that she's going to have a relationship with, with one of the young men. Mm, mm. And we've got a younger, younger Tom Hiddleston in, in the movie, Yes, indeed. In I think it might have been his first film. And um, that, that seems to dominate the, the second half of the movie. And I think it sort of unbalances the film a little bit. Well, I think it, it takes it somewhere else which, where, where it was unexpected. And, and uh, it, uh, um, you're, you're kind of watching through close fingers at some of these sequences. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're deliberately... She's, she doesn't belong in, this, in that world. She doesn't belong in that age group. Yeah, so there is this but she embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. The audience is embarrassed for the character. Yeah. And we're almost waiting for, for some kind of catastrophe or for the whole thing to sort of blow up and, 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 and then yeah. to see what her response to that will be and how she's going to react. Yeah, for someone on holiday, she's never really at ease. No, no. Well, she, she's almost not on holiday in that mm. sense. You know, mm. she's, 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 in, she's in a holiday location, but she's got so much anxiety about all kinds of different things and develops new anxieties while, she, while she's yeah. there. Um, and the, the pressure just seems to build and build and build. And you, you also have a hierarchy here. Yes. Clearly, yes. she is not in her career. She's not successful in the way that her friend is. Mm. She doesn't have that kind of status. Yeah. She also seems to be a little bit of an interloper within the group as well. Yeah. They've all got their own little relationships and friendships and so on. And she's invited there, mm. but she's almost there on her own. She's the outsider. She's not part of any of the cliques within the unit. There's one interesting scene where she is and Tom Hiddleston are sat on the steps in uh, Siena, um, just having a break and that they have a conversation about um, the worth of relationships and he as a young as a, as a, a hot-blooded teenager is really all about physical attraction mm. and she is arguing the case for something something deeper and more meaningful and they kind of have a meeting point very briefly a meeting point yeah. where they both understand yeah. each other. Because you're, you're, you're making him sound like a, a shallow character there, and I'm sure you don't intend to, because he no. isn't. He's, 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 he's got a little more about Oh, he him, certainly I has. Than... I mean, on the surface, we have this hedonist, yeah. which yeah. you would expect. Someone who is kind of resentful of still about going on holiday with his parents mm. at the age that he is. 
Um, but very, very quickly, he and uh, the, 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 other, uh, the others of his age um, established their, um, their own uh, kind of identity within this. Very and they have their own ambitions about what they want out of this holiday. Mm. And it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't include the parents. I, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm like Daryl on Lim Ramsey. I have a blind spot oh, when it right. comes to Joanna Hogg. I, I kind of give this film a pass when I first saw it. Because it was the first one, and also because it felt like it felt like we hadn't had a movie like this for a while. We'd had decades of of working class stories. We had decades of sort of like uh, different ethnical ethnic stories or, or different cultures being depicted in movies. And then suddenly we got this movie, which was middle class white problems <laughs> on holiday well, in Tuscany. I mean, that's and it's, a- it was kind of like okay, it's been a good while since we've had a movie like this. And then it started to repeat itself in her work. Oh, I think that, that that's, yeah. That's definitely something yeah. that she goes back and to. And, I mean, it, the, you know, things like Exhibition that came out that were yeah. laughter, very much a kind of a, an artist's film about art. Yeah. And, and I, it can I, be I, insular, archipelago. Archipelago, again, and when, I think that's this, this one's followed this one up. And it was just more of the same for me. And it was just like, I have, I think we've mentioned this before, and Daryl quoted, quoted the Smiths on it and said, it said nothing to me about my life. <laughs> and it literally, I was watching, I think this literally is completely alien to me. I am not as old as that character, or mm. wasn't when I first saw it, and I'm not as young as the other characters. I mean, I'm caught between two, those two years, so I don't want the hedonism of the youth, but I don't equally want the, the, the anxiety of middle age either, middle class. Uh, it was just, it, 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 it just didn't land for me at all. Right, okay. I, I, yeah. I appreciated the way it was shot, and I thought it was well done, and the way it was composed, and I liked the pace. And the pace about the, about her movies is, is is interesting. She doesn't feel like she needs to rush to get anywhere, which I like generally in films. But with this, I'm just yeah, I'm not. Okay, yeah, I can I can accept that. Yeah. I mean, it it, um, um, I, it it invited me in. Mm. I mean, you know, like any film, what do you want? You want a world that you actually are in, almost mm. as an unpaid extra. And uh, I did feel invested in this world that was being created. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can agree with that to an extent, David. I, I, I love, I, I don't know why I like films that, um, and we've had quite a few of them over the years. Um, they're often set in Italy. There have been several, uh, several films where we've um, simply had situations of families or groups of friends or so on sat around these big rustic tables with piles of pasta and fruit and great Italian food and they just have conversation around the table and somehow for me it's riveting cinema and this this is almost like the British version of that and th- those were the scenes and I wish there'd been more of them in right. this that, that I, I really sort of felt at home with and sort of thought I, I'd quite like to be sat around that table I'd I, like to be talking to What people. I think is interesting maybe and I think it, you could argue the case here with Joanna Hogg as I think you, you would with Peter Green, Greenaway is that these are, these are Europe European filmmakers. Yes, yeah. They're not British filmmakers, they're European. Um, and I, it would be interesting to see, or if, if I were of a different culture, how, if I were French or Italian or Spanish or whatever, how I would re, uh, have re, uh, related to unrelated. Yeah, okay. I think I would have seen a different kind Again, of film. I think you can contrast that with, uh, with Lynn Ramsey's films, which is also set in Europe, but which um, isn't, is, isn't a European-feeling yeah. film, is it? So. I mean, she's becoming... Well, her films recently been set in America, yes, in the yeah, US, yeah. so there's a different kind of... I think with Joanna Hogg's film, it reminds me... This came, they both came out at the same time, but I mm. Am Love by Luca Guadagnino. Yeah. That kind of felt like they were sharing <sighs> similar types yes, of... Yeah, that yeah. frustrated me. I thought <laughs> okay, that was... So. I thought that was art house by numbers. Oh yeah, no, me too. But that's what I kind of feel about um, oh, right. ago. It felt like it was like, well, Eric Roma does this style of thing. We're going to go with Eric Roma. Look, we're going to go. We are. It felt like with it I am love. Kind of I think uh, you know, I, uh, the whole audience must have known where it was going. Well, yeah, but they, but I didn't. I didn't necessarily feel that with unrelated. But then no. again, I don't think plot is necessarily the point of unrelated, which no, seems, seems no. a cop out in many ways. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely. Know, what have you? What, what are you hooking your audience? The, the, the most obvious one is narrative. Mm. Yeah, no, there's not. It's not. It's not in that. Definitely. Mm. I mean, the, the, the scenes of families getting around dinner tables. I feel like, unless it's like Feston, where there's some <laughs> actual like dramatic reasons to do yeah. it. I like scenes where they just sit around the table and it's just like all oh, character work. 
are fine to watch, but I, I, I feel like in a movie like this, it just, well, I think with Europe, a lot of European films, you're getting argument, mm. and that's the driver mm. that you're getting a dilemma or someone. I mean, the, what was the uh, what was the film that um, the Isabel Huppert film that came out a couple of oh, Frankie. Mm. That is trading, I think, on films that have gone before. Yeah. I don't think Frankie actually said anything new, mm. and it didn't even exploit its um, its exotic setting very very well so I think it was a bit of a frustration um, but that's the, it, it, to some extent with films like maybe Morven Keller certainly unrelated that's where you're heading yeah yeah films oh. where you're getting artificial conflicts which are kind of played out in the sun mm. and they may or may not be resolved yeah. what, what I find really effective about this type of film though and about these films with groups of people who are in a sort of confined space or a confined situation is that um, they're more like theatre than cinema, really, in terms of their scripts, in, in, in that you're getting, more, you're getting more than simple conflict. Often, often in movies, we get one character or one set of characters pitted against another. I think the larger the group, the more viewpoints come into play, and, and you're often getting three or four um, sort of ways of looking at things or sides of an argument it's great that that happens. And if it happens around a, a, a table that's piled with, with gorgeous looking food as well, um, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I think that can work dramatically really well. It's easy to get wrong. Any final thoughts on, on the genre as a whole? Well, we, I think we've established, and I think, you know, I think we're correct in saying that there is a British genre that this, uh, you know, we have a, a British attitude towards the holiday film, which I don't see replicated necessarily. You mentioned Italy, but it's uh, it it, uh, it it's, uh, it's not necessarily associated with, you know, a country making films about that their countrymen going abroad. Mm. I'm not sure that they have, you know, they have uh, uh, common threads. I mean, one film that again that I was nearly considering, but. In, it's an outlier in this context, with Mr. Hulot's Holiday. Yeah. Um, and, and you can understand why that's an international success, because there's very little language in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's all physical comedy. But that, I think, is a very interesting film. And it does, it is a, clearly a French film. Yeah. I don't think that another country would have made that film with that iconic central character and all the mayhem that he creates or that he's embroiled in. I think it's quite funny because I think, I think the French mentality of the holiday is just, it, it, it is just a holiday, generally within mm. France in that, in that case. Whereas Britain, it's more about taking the British culture and mentality and putting it in an alien culture. Well, we, we haven't mentioned it, but obviously weather is a factor. We can never guarantee in this country that if we holiday in this country, we're going to get two weeks of sun. No. You go to Portugal or Spain or France or Italy, and it's virtually guaranteed. Mm. Uh, so you don't have that kind of question mark. No, no, you don't. Yeah, Stay, staycations are much more uh, um, tolerable when you have consistent weather patterns like that. Yeah. <laughs> I've just got a couple of extra films to mention very briefly mm. as recommendations if people yeah, haven't good. seen them. One from 2009, um, made by um, a lot of Shane Meadows regulars. It's uh, The Scouting Book for Boys. Uh, with Tom Turgoose as, as the lead character, uh, Tom Harper as a director who worked on the This Is England TV shows, and Jack Thorne, who wrote uh, for, for This Is England as the scriptwriter. And again, it's, it's a um, summer holiday camp caravan, a typical caravan site, very recognisable to, to most British viewers, I'm sure. A story of two teenagers who get together 14-year-old boy and a young girl who sort of um, become friends and have adventures around the holiday camp. And then it all lurches into this um, sort of rather murky sort of thriller territory towards the end. I mentioned the film because I, I, th- I think it really evokes that very, very British world of the caravan site extremely well. And, uh, you know, you, you can put your own sort of metaphors or whatever whatever viewpoint you like on that as a backdrop for the, the action that's going on in the film. Um, the other film I wanted to mention is from 1970, um, it's called And Soon the Darkness. It was um, written by Brian Clemens, 
the great British uh, thriller writer who indeed went on to make a TV series called Thriller in the 70s. And this was a, so almost like a pilot film for that TV show made in 1970 with uh, Michelle Dottries and Pamela Franklin. And they're playing two young nurses who go on a cycling holiday in the French countryside. And it's 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 like North by Northwest or like, hmm. like a lot of those... Um, classic films that use bright sunlight and big open spaces as a situation for abject terror. It sets these girls into this world that isn't a dungeon, it's not a castle with shadowy corners and, and things leaping out from everywhere. You couldn't get more open countryside than this. It's set along a long stretch of road, lovely fields and trees and countryside in the background, and yet these girls are being stalked by a killer or the threat of a killer. They don't even know whether, whether it's happening or not because they can't speak the language. Mm. They don't know any French. And, and of course, the areas that they're cycling through are very rural. Nobody there speaks any English. So there's a communication problem. They pick up the idea that there's a killer in, in the area and he's targeting young women. And then one of the girls goes missing. And... Um, it's the, the, the idea of open space and the idea of language both being used as a means of confusion and potential terror that I, I think is this film's real strength. Um, it's called And Soon the Darkness, and I think that's a great title because it, it emphasises the fact that um, the entire movie is actually set in, in bright sunlight and yet maintains this air of total terror. In the 1970s, there was a film waiting to be made with that title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you were talking as well there, two th other films that came to mind were Sightseers, set on the camp mm. campsite, and uh, the Mike Lee TV film, Nuts in May, yes, yeah. which very in a very British way is, is class against class. Yeah. And I, I think Sightseers sort of really sort of emerges out of Nazi May. I think it's very influenced by it. Right, so yeah. They're a nice yeah. little pair, I think. Yes. They're, they're, they're two films that are sort of about... They're about class on the campsite, really, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Two comedy films that I, I, I think probably deserve a mention here, I and mean, we've talked quite a lot about the dramatic purposes of of this kind of movie, but like comedy, obviously with Nail and I, we've gone on mm. holiday by yeah. mistake is a classic example. <laughs> Indeed it is. But also ties in with that sort of like the catalyst for change. Of the holiday being that catalyst for change and giving you a time of time in with nail lights through the trauma of the holiday that the catalyst <laughs> and the, and the weather is and the weather. reflects that completely. Well, you, you, you've, you've got characters who not only have they gone on holiday by mistake, but they again they almost don't want to be there. Yeah. You know, they, they don't want to be on holiday. They'd rather be doing other things. Mm. But then mm. the, the other one I want to mention it's not quite a holiday movie, but it's like called, a film called Get Duked. Uh, which is uh, about four kids who go on a orienteering holiday for the Duke of Edinburgh Award and come up against uh, very posh hunters who are not hunting game. <laughs> uh, with Eddie Izzard's in that one. But that was a real surprise for me. I saw that last year. I think it's available now, but uh, one to check out. Okay, thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daryl. And I want to thank the BFI and Quad for supporting these podcasts, and we will see you in two weeks' time. Take care.